All right, um, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, uh, I'm, I think it's interesting why you were giving your uh, the monologue and your prayer after, um, after the worship set that you quoted the verses that I'm actually going to preach out of this morning. So there we go. All right, so Matthew chapter number 16, I guess I should have marked it in my Bible because I can't, I got a, a new Bible. You know, when you get a new Bible, you turn one page and it turns like a thousand of them, you know, so... Matthew chapter number 16, and uh, one of my favorite things to talk about, it seems like I end up here just about every time I end up speaking, but I I love talking about the church and what that means. Interestingly enough, Justin called me while I was on my honeymoon. He couldn't couldn't stay away. He just couldn't. He couldn't take it. He had to call me, and uh, so uh, he also, we we talked in some probably generalities about, uh, you know, church culture and things of that nature. Um, one of the great things I love about the church is, is that we don't have to worry about making sure that it's going to be here. It's not our job. Uh, in Matthew chapter 16, we find out very clearly that Jesus said, that's my job. Uh, it was my idea to begin with. You know, so often we think everybody, everything rises and falls on us so much, don't we? We're like, oh, we got to get it all right. And I'm so glad that it's not on me to get it all right because I have proven time and time and time and time again that I don't get it all right. Some of you are laughing more than you should be at that statement, but all right. But um, amen. Thank you, Pastor. And <laughs> I, I've preached this message before when I uh, pastored Gospel Life, and I think I also preached it. This is when I pastored New Hope as well. So this is not new to me. Uh, this is a great thing about when Justin asked me to preach last minute, which is seemingly the way that, that it goes. Uh, you know, I've got all this, this archive. I go back in there and I kind of revamp it, highlight some things, you know, to make sure that they're right, take some things out and think to myself, I can't believe I said that in public 10 years ago. Uh, but uh, and nonetheless, Matthew chapter 16 has always uh, kind of fascinated me and what Jesus said about the church. Uh, even when I was in college, it really caught my attention. I remember spending a lot of time on that. Um, my views on what the church is have changed quite a bit. Uh, I remember as as I was pastoring a, a church probably six or seven years ago, uh, I became involved in somewhat of a heresy, to be honest with you, where people that joined our church had to be rebaptized to even get into our church on the membership. And uh, because I had a misunderstanding about what the church was, uh, I saw the church as a singularity of group individuals in one place, which it is, but it's also more than that, you see. And I think a lot of the times in order, we, we find ourselves in uh, individual church situations, we find ourselves very protective of what we believe as if what we believe is like the end-all be-all of what is to be believed, you know. And then uh, it's like Jeremiah Johnson said, not the Robert Redford Jeremiah Johnson, but the one that was here the other day, though I wish the Jeremiah Johnson that Robert Redford played was a preacher. That would be awesome. And so nonetheless, he said, don't forget to, re- don't forget to love people that believe different from you. And uh, love isn't a confirmation of wrong. Love is a confirmation of the value of an individual. And I'm glad that Jesus loves me regardless of what I believe sometimes, or irregardless, I guess I should say, of what I believe sometimes. And I got you, pow, pow, look at that. I'm married to somebody that is very particular about English, so I have to watch that stuff. I'm dropping about seven double negatives on purpose in this message, though, so prepare yourself. I may even whip out a triple negative because I'm talented like that. 
All right, so let's read the Bible before I go too far off the rails. Matthew chapter 16, uh, we're going to read verses 13 down to verse number 20. We're going to back up. We're going to go back through those, draw some conclusions. Hopefully they're biblical. Go home blessed. Amen. Verse 13 It says, when Jesus came into the region, and by the way, if you're looking on your phone, I'm reading out the New King James Version, if you'd like to follow along word for word. So, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? By the way, side note, Jesus always referred to himself as the Son of Man. And if you want an interesting study of how that connects to the gospel, go back through and look at each time Jesus referred to himself as the son of man. He, he made his identity with us in order that he could be the sacrifice for us. That's why he called himself son of man all the time. All right, side note, different sermon. He said, so who do people say that I am? So they said, some say John the Baptist. That's pretty high score. John, actually, John the Dunker, John the Immerser, but it doesn't sound quite as... Maybe John the Dunker sounds pretty cool. John the Immerser. Some say Elijah. That's a home run hitter. Others, Jeremiah. And you know why they call... They said some people say he's Jeremiah because they saw the compassion of Jesus. They said that he was John the Baptist because he was... He came across a little untamable, you know. They said that he was Elijah because he showed great power, you know. He had a presence, uh, they said that some say you're Jeremiah because he was compassionate. Jeremiah known as the weeping prophet. So this is why we have these different descriptors. And when Jesus asked them, or some of them just said, they just said you're one of the prophets. They don't know what to think about you. But they know that what you're doing was, has only been read about in Moses and the law and the prophets. And what you're doing and who your presence, your personal appearance, your presence says something about one of these Old Testament prophets. And we're kind of enamored with those folks, aren't we? We look at those and we're like, yes, you know. Elijah, he goes to Elijah and says, give me a double portion of your spirit, you know. We want what they had, but we don't know what we're asking for. (laughs) And so in verse 15, uh, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, always answering first, said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's quite a statement. Matter of fact, that's the first time we see someone out and out making the statement like that. And it wasn't like Peter was just thinking about this out of nowhere. It was in his mind. I mean, you don't make a statement like that without having gone through. Now, we sometimes when we, we, let me say it this way. Let me back up. Let me put the squirrel back on the wheel in here for a minute. You know, when Jesus approached Matthew, he approached Mark, and he approached these men, and he said, come and follow me. We think to ourselves that they were like all in with both feet. But they weren't necessarily in every sense of the word. So much so that after Jesus died, what did Thomas say? He said, I won't believe it unless I take my hand and I put... Now, think about this. He said, I won't believe it, not if I see the mark, but unless I take my hand and I put it inside of his wounded body? Uh, he's calling for a whole lot of confirmation at that point. You know what I mean? He, he, he said, I won't even believe it if I see him with my own eyes. I have to see him, touch him, and not just touch him, but touch the, the wound that took his life. Now, I'm not saying that these guys didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. I'm saying this. It took him a minute to come to that place. All right, it's good. It takes a minute. 
It takes a minute sometimes. You know, when we tell people you must be born again, we forget about all the labor pains that lead up to a baby. You know what I mean? And while salvation is not processional in the sense that you have to go through this step and this step and this step, it does work its way to the point where in that moment of time a person's born again. There's a lot surrounding that baby, as it were, coming into this world. Salvation's the same way. It takes some time for these guys to get to this place. And so for Peter to stand up and say, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God, we then, in the next verse, learn something about Peter. In verse 17, he says, Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, that's his government name, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but get this, but my Father which is in heaven. You see, it wasn't, not, it wasn't even that Peter just saw what was happening. There was a spiritual transaction that went on between the Father and Peter to reveal to him who Jesus actually was. Now, with all that being said, Jesus makes a statement. He says, it wasn't revealed to you uh, by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven, verse 18. And I also say to you, you are Peter. And this is a play on words, because Cephas and Peter and all this, these are different references to a size of a stone, really, is what he's doing here. Jesus is kind of making a play on words. He says, I say unto you that you are Peter, and on this rock, and the rock is not talking about Peter. That's where we get mixed up. The rock that Jesus is talking about is referring back to what Peter said about Jesus. It's much more clear when you, like, diagram the sentences. He says, I will, he says, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades or the gates of hell, depending on what you're reading, shall not prevail against it. And I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Now, I want to talk to you this morning about this. I want to talk to you about the church that Jesus built. All right, the church that Jesus built and the church that Jesus is building, okay? Um, you can go to any Christian bookstore or um, forget a Christian bookstore, just Google it, you know, and just Google what is the church and prepare yourself for about 90,000 pages of information. Uh, we have defined the church based on names on the front. Now, we do that. We do it here as a branding type of a thing just so you know somewhat of what you're getting into. But hold on, we haven't got the snakes out yet. Just relax. We'll get to them later. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I am kidding, right? Okay, good. Yeah, we're kidding. No snakes here. All right, good. This, this ex-Baptist boy can't handle the snakes thing, so. Carol can handle the snakes thing. I can't do it. Indeed. And see, she's ready. I told you she's probably got one in her purse. But uh, <laughs> that's a pet snake. Right? That's not her church snake. That's the pet snake. Church snake has a tie on. Anyways. <laughs> Here's something to remember about the church. Back on track. While the local church has organization, as we, you know, lightly mentioned earlier, while the local church or the church in general, the church as a whole, it does have some sort of organization, all right? Though it has an organiza has organization, it is not an organization, all right? That's not what it is. Uh, you know, I used to be real big about church membership as if I was supposed to be the one that Jesus whispered in his ear and said, okay, it's okay if that one comes in. You know what I mean? 
that one believes things good enough. Let them on in. You know what I mean? But the fact of the matter is, is the church is an organism. It's living. It's growing. It's breathing, so to speak. People, now get this. This is one thing that really bothered me. I used to get really upset when people left one of the churches I was pastoring. It used to really bother me. And uh, Justin, you know the, the temptation is to go back into your office or into your house and begin to ask yourself what you did wrong. What could we have done better? Was the music not good enough? Was, did we take up the offering weird? Should we have given them a high five rather than a pamphlet to say thank you for coming? I mean, what should we have done? That's, that's the temptation there. But the fact of the matter is, is that the church that Jesus built, it's his business where the people land for each one of those individual con- uh, con- congregations. I called a friend of mine, his name's Ken, he's in Kansas, and I was real upset about a couple of people that had left the, left the church. And he said, buddy, is the body of Christ is it a living organism? I said, yes. He says, does it have the function of a mind and a heart and hands and feet, just like the Bible describes? I said, yes. He says, do you think it has a circulatory system? I said, I gotta let you go now. You know, <laughs> goodbye. Stop trying to use logic on me, all right? But the fact of the matter is this, is people, people, God moves people sometimes for no other reason that he knows something that you don't know, you know? Sometimes you want to move, and he's like, nope, mm-mm, nope. You need to hold on for a minute here, buddy. Don't get squirrely on me. This ecclesia is the Greek word, this, the called out ones of God. The idea of the church was God's idea. Uh, Paul tells us in some of his epistles that it was a mystery revealed later of what God was going to do. And there's a lot of theological things that I would love to talk about that for hours and probably should start a podcast, right, Brian? And no, Brian's no. He's like, no, don't do it, please. There's too many. But let's look at three things about the church that Jesus is going to build. Just three of them real quick. We'll be out of here. You can beat the other non-denominational church down the street to whatever restaurant you guys are going to, San Miguel's, whatever. All right, the first thing I want us to look at is this, all right? I want, to see, I want you to see the identity of the church, the identity of the church. In a world of branding, which isn't necessarily bad, we brand things here. We even have T-shirts. Do we have any T-shirts? Sorry, I was going to try to sell you one, but we don't have any. We have T-shirts, we have stickers, we put stickers on us. Nothing wrong with any of that, nothing wrong with it at all. But that's not our identity, all right? Hopefully a person won't walk into this congregation and be here long without understanding that our identity is not how cool our stickers are, all right? Our identity is not how tasty our Folgers coffee is. That's what we use, right, Folgers, Okay. Uh, we, we hopefully it won't be that when people come in here, they're like, that congregation is awesome because the pastor wears skinny jeans. Uh, hopefully that's not it, all right? And if you wore skinny jeans, you'd look like an ice cream cone, so don't do that. <laughs> so uh, please don't. Blue a muffin, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> oh my gosh, I shouldn't be doing this. Yes, yeah, Exactly. So, all in all, I don't want you to think that I'm be like, well, here at Pure Grace, we don't do that, and all those other churches that do that. I'm not saying that, all right? I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, all that's irrelevant to the real identity of the believer, all right? If you want to wear ice cream cone skinny jeans, fine. Go ahead, do it. You can put a sticker all the way across the back of your car. Don't care. What is, what is the, the source or the function of not only the congregation as a whole, but the individual that makes it up? 
That's what identity is about. And if there's anything that the modern church is dealing with, it's an identity crisis. That is for sure. That's why we're trying so hard to brand ourselves as something. I can remember doing it. I mean, it's not like I'm like, I'm telling you from my own personal experience, I would sit around and think to myself, what can we do at this church to separate ourselves from the church down the road? Why? Like it's a contest all of a sudden. Like, you know, like we got to get more lasers. You know, there's no way that we're going to be able to worship without more lasers. You know, we got worship vape. We've got to have more. You know what I mean? I've got to be dealing with the controversial topics at the time. I'm telling you, this is the stuff that went on in my mind to an extent. I'm exaggerating for your entertainment, but nonetheless, it still was re- a reality. Jesus calls in this idea, of question, uh, uh, this idea of identity right here. Because he asks him, he says, who do people say I am? What kind of identity are people attributing to me? Now, he wasn't saying it because Jesus is like, I need to take a, you know, a, a Gallup poll to understand how I'm going to get more disciples. That's not what he was doing. He was wanting them to think about this idea of identity. That's what he was doing here. At the very onset, Jesus said, this thing that's going to be known as church is going to be directly associated with me. Now, it's not that Jesus is a megalomaniac or an egomaniac or anything of that nature, but the perfect God-man knows what the fallen man needs. He's the answer to the fallen man. He's the last Adam, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. He is that seed. Uh, He is the one that bruised the serpent's head, so to speak. Not so to speak, it literally says that. This misguided identity with us particularly, uh, particularly as individuals and corporately as the body of Christ can seem very good because everything that the disciples said about Jesus wasn't bad. They, he didn't say, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, they think you're a crook. They didn't say that. The people said, man, they think you're some kind of hardcore Old Testament prophet. And we, we would say, well, that's not bad. Now, let me just say this. It's not bad to be John the Baptist. It's not bad to be Elijah. It's not bad to be Jeremiah. It's not bad to be one of the other prophets. The only problem with that is none of those folks are Jesus. That's the, that was the issue at hand. So Jesus was calling, he was saying, listen, I know what society may say about me. All right? You know what society, we are so obsessed sometimes with trying to get society to accept us as the church. I got a little secret for you. May not have noticed it. Ain't going to happen, all right? It's not going to happen. We don't even have to go out of our way to have this. You know, sometimes we, if we're not careful, we'll get this mentality where, like, I'm going to make everybody not like me. You know what I mean? We're going to, our church sign is going to have some kind of crazy statement on it. I used to work for a church, (laughs) and that was, like, my job, was to put the most offensive statement on the sign possible and then when somebody threw a rock at it, we get up in church, we're suffering for Christ. You know, I was like, no, we're just a bunch of jerks. <laughs> That's what we were. We are suffering for being jerks, you know. Somebody get up there and rearrange the letters and on it and whatnot just to be mean back. You know, they're like, oh, yeah, watch this. I'm Googling sarcastic things. Look, me and you both know I don't have to Google sarcastic things to say. But I did, you know, to put on the church sign. Why, we want to be... 
we want to be in their face sometimes, don't we? Because we feel like the more confrontational we are, the more effective we are. You know what, every time, you remember that time where there was a group, <laughs> Jesus talking to the Pharisees, he had a lot of problems with those guys, you know this. They came up to Jesus, and they were so mad at him, they were going to just grab him. You remember that part? Jesus did not roll up his sleeves and go MMA with these people. You know, he didn't do that. He, he, he did, he, you know what he did? He says, and he passed through them. He just walked right past it. You know why? Because Jesus wasn't there for conflict. He was there for, he's, he was there for salvation. He was there for souls. He wasn't there for political parties, all right? And I enjoy political parties. I love watching that stuff and listening to it. And uh, <laughs> Ben knows this. And <laughs> I enjoy doing those things just because it's kind of an entertainment to me. At the end of the day, Jesus didn't come to align the New Testament gospel-preaching church as the third party on the ticket in November. He didn't do it. He said, you render under Caesar what Caesar's. You do it. And you render under the, unto God the things that are God's. When the identity is off, our loyalties, so to speak, if I can use that word, and I think you know by it, I'm not like loyal in the sense of some kind of weird cult scenario, but our, maybe our, our adoration will be off. Maybe that'd be a better way to put it. Uh, our, the focus of our love will be off. And so Jesus calls this identity in, and he talks about identity is birthed from revelation, not education. Because when he asks Peter, and Peter makes that great declaration, what does Jesus say? He said, my father's revealed this to you. The father has shown this to you. Now, the, the society and the world's going to look at that and say, well, revelation is unverifiable. Well, to them it is when you do not have the Spirit of God living within you. When you are unassociated with what the Word of God has already said. By the way, I really like those little posts that, Robin, I think if you've been putting those up, it says read, and then it says pray, and it says worship. Has that been you, or has that been Justin? Look at Justin taking the credit publicly like Jesus would. And so, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I do like those. Because what it is, is it draws us back to where it points back to where real identity comes from, what real worship is, what real Bible reading is. It's a matter of bringing, putting revelation before us and living in revelation. This question that Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Not only, first off, it affects, a, let's put it this way, first off, it affects a person's, a person's eternal salvation. You can have a whole lot of very good opinions about Jesus Christ and still die in your sins. All right? You can think he was the greatest guy in the world. You could have several hundred Bible versions, read them and no Bible verses, and have a very high opinion of what a church is and still die in your sins. Because what a person believes about Jesus Christ matters. In, the, in a pluralistic society that we live in, every, let me just say this. All tr everybody's truth, and this, this whole it's my truth thing, is a complete deception. Truth comes from one direction, and that's from God. Any truth that's found is found because of who he is, right? And this idea that, you know, it can be true for me, but it can't be for, true for you, it, it, makes, it makes no logical sense. There's one truth. Wrapped up in a person, that one truth is Jesus Christ. Jesus said it himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No man comes unto the Father but by me. You know why I'm so glad about that? I don't have to stand up and tell you that you have to be baptized and join Pure Grace Church and give money for one year in order to have your sins remitted. I don't have to say that. I don't have to tell you that there's a magic tank of water that when we put you down in it, that's when sin is taken away. You see, all these ways of thinking about having sins forgiven actually takes Jesus' cross and you might as well remove it from existing. Because outside of that, Jesus was just a really good spiritual algebra teacher that told you how to do A plus B equals C in order to have your sins forgiven. And Jesus said, I am the answer. I'm it. So a person's eternal destiny hangs on this idea of trusting Christ to have sins forgiven and have proper spiritual identity. There's no other way to have it. Well, the other thing is, is that not only does the answer to who do you say that I am have eternal consequences, it has personal, practical consequences now, good and bad. If we look at Jesus and we say Jesus is, you know, Jesus take the wheel. You want me to sing it for you? You know, and say Jesus take the wheel, take it from my hand. Sorry, my bad. Whew, bring it in. All right. If we look at Jesus and we see Jesus like a road map, we're going to have a very frustrated Christian life. Because then suddenly, we're outside of who he is, looking in, aren't we? The life of Christ in the believer is not a map, it's a compass. There's a huge difference there. You can find your way, if you're stuck out in the woods and you don't have a compass or a map, you're messed up. But if I had to go without one or the other, I'd rather have the compass. That's what I would rather have. We had this discussion at the dinner table the other night as we all decided we all knew what north, south, and east, and west was. And let's just say that some people in my family, if they were trapped in the woods, not going to name any names, but she would never come back. <laughs> she, would, <laughs> she would now. I've educated her. She knows which way never eat shredded wheat is now. You know that never eat soggy watermelons or whatever it is. I don't know. That sour, whatever, soggy, sour, it rhymes. <laughs> I've never met a soggy watermelon. Maybe I have. Don't even know where I'm going with this. But nonetheless, the quality of life we experience as a believer depends on how we answer that question. It does. A lot of the time when we view what Paul wrote in the New Testament about, you know, the don't do this, don't do that activity, do that, do this, we look at these commands, which is what they are, commands, all right? Not scary to say commands. They're not laws or commands, different. We look at these things and we look at them as something we must do in order to avoid some kind of punitive reaction from God, right? But think of it this way. If the Christian life is about life, it's more about a quality of existence than it, is, than it is getting everything right all the time, all right? And, and a lot of the times we view what the New Testament's telling us and we step back and we find our individual identity in us being able to do certain things right and not do certain things wrong. Men struggle with this way more than women do, all right? That's one reason why a lot of men don't like church, all right? Because when the minute a man feels like he can't get it done right, a lot of the times, he's like, all right, well, I'm just going to back away from this thing. I'm just going to pick the couple of two, three, four I can get right, and I'll get that right over and over and over again. Women are much more gracious than men are. Don't tell my wife I said that, all right? 
And <laughs> Doug, <laughs> I just said, don't tell her. Gosh, pay attention, man. Right here. <laughs> and so this idea of knowing who Jesus is, the Christ, the Son of the living God, you know what that, you know what that takes off of your, bur- off your shoulders, the burden it takes off your shoulders? You're not your Savior. You're not the one having saved your life eternally, and you're not the one that is saving your life on a day-to-day basis, as it were as we understand more about what our sanctification is. And don't get me started on sanctification, Tracy. Because if there's one thing that has absolutely hamstringed us as believers, it's this idea that we have to get more sanctified all the time. What a frustrating way of living. What a, it, just, it just brings your Christian identity up and just hits it right in the shins with a bat. Because it cripples you from being able to rest in Christ grow spiritually, move forward knowing that you're not your savior, that you're not the source of your own life. This is the church that Jesus built. A place, a group, I shouldn't say a place, a group of individuals that know that, yes, Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. I save myself in no way. He reveals all to me. I'm the recipient of everything that he has. We call that, we have a fancy word for that in church. It's a very difficult theological word to define, but it's called grace, all right? That's what it's called. We get confused about it, but that's what it is. And this this revelation about not only your eternal destiny, but also your daily quality, quality of life as a believer is found in who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? Who am I? Am I really your Savior? We would say, well, yes, you really am. Then let him save you. Let him provide the daily life for you that you want. You want it. And let me just tell you this, folks. I hope none of this comes across like a scolding, because if anybody in this room needs to be scolded, it's me. But what I'm saying is, by saying all this, is the fact that inside of you is a desire for everything that we read here in the scriptures it's there you want it you don't if if as believers when we read ephesians we don't say oh my gosh i can't do that as believers we're like i want to be able to to do these things he's talking about you know oh man i wish i enjoyed church more i hate church you don't think that as a believer you don't hate the idea of church you don't You may hate what has happened to you in a local congregation, but you love the idea of a community. You want it. Some of you are watching on the internet because you feel the same way, but you just can't bring yourself to come into a community yet. So you watch online, and that's fine. You might be home, and you might have a a sore throat. Hopefully you don't have COVID-19. The the point that I'm making here is this. You're not in a battle with God to discover your identity. You're not. God is like a faucet with the handle broke off. He just pours out all the time. The question is, is are, we going to, are we going to recognize that we can just step right under that faucet? And all the circumstances that go on in our life is God bringing us to the point and hemming us in to where we get real close to that faucet pouring out. We're like, I don't have anywhere else to go. I guess I'll go here now. That's what it is. 
Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me how many times in life God has like, well, I'm just going to put a, a wall here, and I'm just going to put a wall here, and then we just run into the wall over and over again, and we're finally, all right, that hurts enough, so I'm just going to go over here. And God's like, yes. I tried to say it to you in the still small voice business a couple of times. And by the way, still small voice, you hear the voice of God more than you think you do. You hear him all the time. He'll come, you'll come into a place like this and he'll verify it. You'll open your Bible up randomly, verification. Somebody will walk up to you and say, you know, I was thinking about you the other day and X, Y, and Z. And you're like, oh my gosh, you know, do I need it delivered to me on a birthday cake written on the top at this point? (laughs) See, because it's not like God's mad. It's not like he's angry. It's not like he said, I'm going to create this thing called church so I can control all these people. That's not, the, that's not what he did. Oh, and then I'm going to give them pastors, and the pastors are going to tell them every move to make, you know? Uh, that, I almost preached a sermon on what a pastor was, but I figured I'd let you do that, you know? <laughs> I didn't want, amen. <laughs> there aren't any verses about assistant pastors, or I just would have made some up. But <laughs> there are, though. Anyways, digressing again. All right, let's look at, I've got to hurry. I told uh, one of the, somebody that was in the office, they said, don't rabbit trail too much. I said, well, if anything, I won't rabbit trail as much as I will just not finish the sermon, which is typically what happens to me. Look at verse number 18, all right? Let's put it in second gear or third gear here. And he says, and uh, Jesus speaking, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now notice what he says here, in the gates of hell or Hades, Hades is a better better translation, actually, than just the generic word hell. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, this is an interesting statement. This is a theological position called the impetuity of the church, or the indestructibility of the church, so to speak. A lot of the times, we think to ourselves that it's our job to defend and make sure that the church is maintained. Now, we have a certain amount of responsibility to deal with certain things that come up. God has laid those out in the scriptures and said, here's your responsibility. Not only is it your responsibility, but bonus check, I'm going to empower you to take care of this on top of it all, so don't freak out too bad, all right? The indestructibility or the, or the, the perpetuity of the church is the fact that this, that we're not the ones that has to guarantee that what we know as church, the, the group of believers that have trusted Christ, goes on. Sometimes we get in this, you know, this doomsday mentality where we think to ourselves, oh no, the, the church is just, just falling apart. I am convinced from this scripture the church will never fall apart. Never denominations rise and they fade. Men rise and they fall. And if they rise too fast, they fall real hard. Theological positions, you know what? They come and go in a matter of importance, don't they? But there's one thing you can bet. We're not listening to John Calvin this morning, but we are listening to what Jesus Christ said. We're not listening to a theological leader from the 1830s, are we? But we are listening to what Jesus Christ said. You know why? Because Jesus said, this is my church. I'm going to build it. And when the gates of hell get this, it is a, it, the assumption uh, to an extent can be drawn out of this is that, number one, the gates of hell will oppose the church. But Jesus said, you don't worry about that because I built it. What I build lasts. You know what that insinuates? What he doesn't build doesn't last. 
So there, we can draw a lot of conclusions out of what Jesus just said right here. All right? He said, I'm going to build it. 1 Corinthians 3, 9, for we are God's fellow workers, which is an amazing statement that God says, you know what? We're just going to work together. You know, <laughs> I don't know, whatever job structure you work in, every now and again you have to put together a team of people, you know? <laughs> and there's always that one person where you're like, oh gosh, I got to have four. There's only three available and there's that guy floating around. Yes, I'm at the bring him in on this one, you know, and he comes in like a whirling dervish, you know, just tearing everything up, having to go behind him constantly. We're that person, all right? God says, I'm going to work with you, all right? <laughs> we're going to be co-workers in this thing, and we're like the Tasmanian, spiritual Tasmanian devil, you know? We're fellow, he says, you are God's field. You're God's field. You're his co-worker, but you're also his field. If you, know a far, if you know farmers, the number one thing they have to be or have to be a farmer is, a land, is land, is a field. They have to have it. Now, I'm not saying God has to have us, but I'm saying this. My point being is this, is that God chooses to say, I'm the farmer and you're the field that I'm going to farm in. So, you know, a farmer doesn't just go out there and just haphazardly just throw corn out in the field and say, I'll see you in six months, and he's out. You know, he's in that field. He's in there, and, and you do a lot of gardening. I don't, I don't, you just must like to torture yourself. I hate gardening so much. You don't even know. I grew a garden once, and I got, like, these watermelons about that big around. It was terrible. Yeah, I gave up after that. Typical man fashion. If I can't perfect it, I'm out, you know. And so, nonetheless, a farmer, he goes out, and he does things orderly, doesn't he? He flattens the ground. He fertilizes the ground. He plows it. He gets the rows. He plants the the seed. The seed comes up. He makes sure that he, he's in that constantly. It's every day. It's never not on his mind. And so many times we think to ourselves that, you know, that the, 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 the God that began a good work in me shall show up later to see if I finish it off right. That's the version of the Bible we tend to read sometimes, isn't it? But Jesus says this. He says, listen, I'm going to build my church, and it doesn't matter if the wicked one tries to sweep the leg, he's going to be there to protect the church and see that it goes on forever. Verse 19, we'll wrap this up, okay? He says this. Now, he's speaking to the group at this point. It's not like he's just talking to Peter. And he says, uh, I lost my place. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will also be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, let me, tell you what, let me tell you what it's not saying before I tell you what it's saying. You're welcome. All right? This is not saying that we just dream up what we want to happen, and when we say it, it happens. That's not what this is saying. Because if it was, there would have been a lot of crazy things that's happened in my Christian life over the 15 years, and you would have had to, well, more than that, 20-something years now, and you would have had to bear the consequences of it because I would have called it down on everybody, right? It's kind of like when the... Uh, you know, the disciples, the, the, the town kicked Jesus out. And, uh, you know, John and his brother run up to him and say, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them, Lord? He's like, you don't even know what you're saying. <laughs> you know, 
That's what we would do. If that's what that verse means, we would be like, we would be like some kind of like anime cartoon. We'd be like, call down the fire, you know, and our eyes of this thing be going by and fire would hit. Only some of the younger kids got that one. That's what we would do. That's not what this verse is saying, all right? This verse is connected back to what Jesus said about who he is, all right? Now, I didn't realize, you know, you may not have realized that the, key, the kingdom of heaven had keys, not a key fob, but an actual key, all right? Well, figuratively speaking. What does a key do? A key gives you access. That's what a key gives you. At work, I'm the guy with all the keys, which is also a curse. You know, not only does keys give you, not only do a, does a key give you access, it gives you authority. Authority not in the sense that we're a boss, but authority in the sense that we operate from a position, okay? See, you see how this, it, everything that we believe and we operate in always comes, so to, you know, full circle, plugs right back into identity. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, because you identify with me and I identify with you, I give you two things. I give you access to the thing that this world needs, the thing, quotation marks, that this world needs the most, the kingdom of God. You see, we don't, we, uh, let me read this quote right because it's too uh, snappy for me to get it wrong. But I heard somebody say this, we are not to pray earth up to heaven, but we're to pray heaven down to earth. And that's what this access grants us. When we're, as we operate in our union, the Holy Spirit of God is going to reveal to us exactly how the gospel and when the gospel is to be presented to somebody. You want to see a miracle? Present the gospel to somebody. All right? If you want to see what everything, to just to consolidate everything, every physical miracle Jesus did, he did so for the propagation of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ability to save a man, woman, boy, or girl from the eternal consequences of their sin in that truth. That is a miracle. And Jesus says, I give you authority to stand in my place and say it. I give you access to the power that comes with having your life and my life in you. Colossians 1 verse 13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son and of his love. Now, it's real easy for us to look back into this text and begin to pick some of these things out and make a, you know, across the board application to them. These guys didn't know any of that. They were, you ever, you've ever been on that roller coaster and you sat there, see me, I hate roller coasters. I'm not a daredevil kind of a person. I'm just not. I want to be, but I'm not. You know, I look at the roller coaster and look at it, look at it, and look at it. I have to look at it for a while, and then I'll pray about considering getting on the roller coaster, okay? And inevitably, anytime I decide to myself and I go through this whole thing, you're like, buddy, you're being a wuss, just going on a roller coaster. You know, you get that whole thing going through in your mind. I'm like, all right, fine, I get on it. And there's always that one thing that I didn't see coming, you know what I mean? It's like that drop just looks a little bit more brutal when you get to the top of it, so, to, you know. And that's where these guys were at. All this stuff was coming at them. It was all new. They didn't know what was going on. But you know what they, you know what they did? They didn't operate from having a clear understanding of everything. They operated from having a clear understanding of this one thing. 
And as the church, that's what we have to do. Operate from the one thing. The one thing is, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Everything else we, will be revealed to us as we walk in that. That is the Christian life. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Christian life is not how much you do, quote-unquote, tithe or don't tithe, or how often you do or you don't assemble with the church, or how, you know, what version of the Bible you do read. The number one thing for the church of the living God is, am I the Christ, the Son of the living God? That's the church that Jesus built. That's, that revolves around that identity and around that person. Um, if, if you're with us today and you don't know Christ, we would love, love, love to help you with that. We would love to sit down with you and answer any question you have. How con- We would love to enter into the difficulties that you have coming to that decision and not judge you for it. Just point you to the one that is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the only Savior that has ever forgiven anybody that has ever lived on the face of the earth and ever will. There is no other. If you're a believer and you're struggling with some things, um, we'll have people up here to pray with you afterwards. You know, if there's things going on you want to share, you feel comfortable. If you don't feel comfortable sharing, that's fine. You can come up and say, I've got things, but I don't want to say what they are. And you know what? Surprise, we'll pray for you anyway. Let's have a word of prayer, right? Father, thanks for, uh, thank you for manifesting yourself in the flesh. Thank you for Jesus being the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Christ, the only true forgiver of sins, the only true giver of spiritual life, the very truth that we need to understand who you are and to live as you've created us to be. So we're thankful that you reveal this. We're thankful for what, what we call what's called church, uh, being able to assemble together with one another. That's more than just a like-mindedness, but a spiritual connection that, that we need uh, between you and between other people. And uh, we're thankful for the gospel, and uh, we praise you for being more wise than we could even pretend to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.